Section 14 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin, Alexander, Chapters 53-64. to 64. Moreover, the other sophists and flatterers in the train of Alexander were annoyed to see Callisthenes eagerly courted by the young men on account of his eloquence, and no less pleasing to the older men on account of his mode of life, which was well-ordered, dignified, and independent, and confirmed the reason given for his sojourn abroad, namely, that he had gone to Alexander from an ardent desire to restore his fellow-citizens to their homes and repeople his native city. Footnote, Olynthus which had been destroyed by Philip in 347 BC. End footnote. And besides being envied on account of his reputation, he also at times, by his own conduct, furnished material for his detractors, rejecting invitations for the most part, and when he did go into company, by his gravity and silence making it appear that he disapproved or disliked what was going on, so that even Alexander said in allusion to him, I hate a wise man, even to himself unwise. It is said, moreover, that once, when a large company had been invited to the king's supper, Callisthenes was bidden, when the cup came to him, to speak in praise of the Macedonians, and was so successful on the theme that the guests rose up to applaud him and threw their garlands at him. Whereupon Alexander said that, in the language of Euripides, when a man has for his words, a noble subject, it is easy to speak well. But show us the power of your eloquence, said he, by a denunciation of the Macedonians, that they may become even better by learning their faults. And so Callisthenes began his palinode, and spoke long and boldly in denunciation of the Macedonians, and after showing that faction among the Greeks was the cause of the increase of Philip's power, added, But in a time of sedition the base man too is in honour. This gave the Macedonians a stern and bitter hatred of him, and Alexander declared that Callisthenes had given a proof not of his eloquence, but of his ill-will towards the Macedonians. This, then, according to Hermippus, is the story which Strebus, the slave who read aloud for Callisthenes, told to Aristotle, and he says that when Callisthenes was aware of the alienation of the king twice or thrice, as he was going away from him, he recited the verse, Dead is also Patroclus, a man far braver than thou art. What Aristotle said, then, would seem to have been no idle verdict, namely that Callisthenes showed great ability as a speaker, but lacked common sense. But in the matter of the obeisance, at least by refusing sturdily and like a philosopher to perform the act, and by standing forth alone, and rehearsing in public the reasons for the indignation which all the oldest and best of the Macedonians cherished in secret, he delivered the Greeks from a great disgrace, and Alexander from a greater, by leading him not to insist upon the obeisance, but he destroyed himself, because he was thought to use force rather than persuasion with the king. Caris of Mytilene says that once at a banquet, Alexander, after drinking, handed the cup to one of his friends, and he, on receiving it, rose up so as to face the household shrine, and when he had drunk, first made obeisance to Alexander, then kissed him, and then resumed his place upon the couch. As all the guests were doing this in turn, Callisthenes took the cup, the king not paying attention but conversing with Hephaestion, and after he had drunk went towards the king to kiss him. 
But Demetrius, surnamed Fido, cried, O king, do not accept his kiss, for he alone has not done the obeisance. So Alexander declined the kiss, at which Callisthenes exclaimed in a loud voice, Well then, I'll go away the poorer by a kiss. The king, having been thus alienated in the first place, Hephaestion found credence for his story that Callisthenes had promised him to make obeisance to the king, and then had been false to his agreement. Again, men like Lysimachus and Hagnon persisted in saying that the sophist went about with lofty thoughts as if bent on abolishing a tyranny, and that the young men flocked to him and followed him about as if he were the only free man among so many tens of thousands. For this reason also, when the conspiracy of Hermolaus and his associates against Alexander was discovered, it was thought that the accusations of his detractors had an air of probability. They said, namely, that when Hermolaus put the question to him how he might become a most illustrious man, Callisthenes said, by killing the most illustrious, and that in inciting Hermolaus to the deed, he bade him have no fear of the golden couch, but remember that he was an approaching a man who was subject to sickness and wounds. And yet not one of the accomplices of Hermolaus, even in the last extremity, denounced Callisthenes. Nay, even Alexander himself, in the letters which he wrote at once to Craterus, Attalus, and Alcetus, says that the youths confessed under torture that they had made this attempt of themselves, and that no one else was privy to it. But in a letter written later to Antipater, wherein he accuses Callisthenes also of the crime, he says, The youths were stoned to death by the Macedonians, but the sophist I will punish, together with those who sent him to me, and those who harbour in their cities men who conspire against my life. And in these words, at least, he directly reveals a hostility to Aristotle, in whose house Callisthenes, on account of his relationship, had been reared, being a son of Hero, who was a niece of Aristotle. As to the death of Callisthenes, some say that he was hanged by Alexander's orders, others that he was bound hand and foot and died of sickness, and Chares says that after his arrest he was kept in fetters seven months, that he might be tried before a full council when Aristotle was present, but that about the time when Alexander was wounded in India, he died from obesity and the disease of lice. This, however, belongs to a later time. Footnote, the spring of 327 BC. End footnote. Meanwhile, Demaratus the Corinthian, who was now well on in years, was eagerly desirous of going up to Alexander, and when he had seen him, he said that those Greeks were deprived of a great pleasure who had died before seeing Alexander seated on the throne of Darius. However, he did not long enjoy the king's goodwill towards him, but died from debility. His obsequies were magnificent, and the army raised in his memory a mound of great circumference and eighty cubits in height. His ashes were carried down to the seaboard on a four-horse chariot splendidly adorned. Alexander was now about to cross the mountains into India. Footnote in the late spring of 327 BC, end footnote. And since he saw that his army was by this time cumbered with much booty and hard to move at break of day, after the baggage wagons had been loaded, he burned first those which belonged to himself and his companions, and then gave orders to set fire to those of the Macedonians. And the planning of the thing turned out to be a larger and more formidable matter than its execution, for it gave annoyance to a few only of the soldiers, while the rest of them, with rapturous shouts and war cries, shared their necessaries with those who were in need of them, and what was superfluous they burned and destroyed by their own hands, thus filling Alexander with zeal and eagerness. Besides, he was already greatly feared, and inexorable in the chastisement of a transgressor. 
For instance, when a certain Menander, one of his companions, who had been put in command of a garrison, refused to remain there, he put him to death. And Orsodates, a barbarian who had revolted from him, he shot down with his own hand. When a sheep yeaned a lamb which had upon its head what looked like a tiara in form and colour with testicles on either side of it, Alexander was filled with loathing at the portent and had himself purified by the Babylonians, whom he was accustomed to take along with him for such purposes. And in conversation with his friends, he said that he was not disturbed for his own sake, but for theirs, fearing lest after his death heaven might devolve his power upon an ignoble and impotent man. However, a better portent occurred and put an end to his dejection. The Macedonian, namely, who was set over those in charge of the royal equipage, Proxinus by name, as he was digging a place for the king's tent along the river Oxus, uncovered a spring of liquid which was oily and fatty. But when the top of it was drawn off, there flowed at once a pure and clear oil, which appeared to differ from olive oil neither in odour nor in flavour, and in smoothness and lustre was altogether the same, and that too though the country produced no olive trees. It is said, indeed, that the Oxus itself also has a very soft water, which gives sleekness to the skin of those who bathe in it. However, that Alexander was marvellously pleased is clear from what he writes to Antipater, where he speaks of this as one of the greatest omens vouchsafed to him from heaven. The seers, however, held that the omen foreshadowed an expedition which would be glorious, but difficult and toilsome. For oil, they said, was given to men by heaven as an aid to toil. And so it proved, for he encountered many perils in the battles which he fought, and received very severe wounds. But the greatest losses which his army suffered were caused by lack of necessary provisions and severity of weather. Still, he was eager to overcome fortune by boldness and force by valour, and thought nothing invincible for the courageous, and nothing secure for the cowardly. It is said that when he was besieging the citadel of Sisimithres, which was steep and inaccessible, so that his soldiers were disheartened, he asked Oxyartes what sort of a man Sisimithres himself was in point of spirit, and when Oxyartes replied that he was most cowardly of men, By words mean, said Alexander, that we can take the citadel, since he who commands it is a weak thing. And indeed he did take the citadel, by frightening Sisimithres. Again, after attacking another citadel equally precipitous, he was urging on the younger Macedonians and addressing one who bore the name of Alexander, said, it behooves thee at least to be a brave man, even for thy name's sake. And when the young man, fighting gloriously, fell, the king was pained beyond measure. And at another time, when his Macedonians hesitated to advance upon the citadel called Nysa, because there was a deep river in front of it, Alexander, halting on the bank, cried, Most miserable man that I am, why, pray, have I not learned to swim? And at once, carrying his shield, he would have tried to cross. And when, after he had put a stop to the fighting, ambassadors came from the beleaguered cities to beg for terms, they were amazed, to begin with, to see him in full armour and without an attendant, and besides, when a cushion was brought him for his use, he ordered the eldest of the ambassadors, Acuphis by name, to take it for his seat. Acuphis, accordingly, astonished at his magnanimity and courtesy, asked what he wished them to do in order to be his friends. Thy countrymen, said Alexander, must make thee thy ruler and send me a hundred of their best men. At this Acuphis laughed and said, Nay, O king, I shall rule better if I send to thee the worst men rather than the best. Taxiles, we are told, had a realm in India as large as Egypt, with good pasturage too, and in the highest degree productive of beautiful fruits. 
He was also a wise man in his way, and after he had greeted Alexander, said, Why must we war and fight with one another? Alexander, if thou art not come to rob us of water, or of necessary sustenance, the only things for which men of sense are obliged to fight obstinately. As for other wealth and possessions so called, if I am thy superior therein, I am ready to confer favours. But if thine inferior, I will not object to thanking you for favours conferred. At this Alexander was delighted, and clasping the king's hand said, Canst thou think, pray, that after such words of kindness our interview is to end without a battle? Nay, thou shalt not get the better of me, for I will contend against thee and fight to the last with my favours, that thou mayest not surpass me in generosity. So, after receiving many gifts and giving many more, at last he lavished upon him a thousand talents in coined money. This conduct greatly vexed Alexander's friends, but it made many of the barbarians look upon him more kindly. The best fighters among the Indians, however, were mercenaries, and they used to go about to the different cities and defend them sturdily, and wrought much harm to Alexander's cause. Therefore, after he had made a truce with them in a certain city, and allowed them to depart, he fell upon them as they marched and slew them all, and this act adheres like a stain to his military career. In all other instances he waged war according to usage and like a king. The philosophers too, no less than the mercenaries, gave him trouble, by abusing those of the native princes who attached themselves to his cause, and by inciting the free peoples to revolt. He therefore took many of these also and hanged them. Of his campaign against Porus, he himself has given an account in his letters. Footnote. It was in the spring of 326 BC. End footnote. He says, namely, that the river Hydaspes flowed between the two camps, and that Porus stationed his elephants on the opposite bank and kept continual watch of the crossing. He himself, accordingly, day by day, caused a great din and tumult to be made in his camp, and thereby accustomed the barbarians not to be alarmed. Then, on a dark and stormy night, he took a part of his infantry and the best of his horsemen, and after proceeding along the river to a distance from where the enemy lay, crossed over to a small island. Here rain fell in torrents, and many tornadoes and thunderbolts dashed down upon his men. But nevertheless, although he saw that many of them were being burned to death by the thunderbolts, he set out from the islet, and made for the opposite banks. But the Hidaspes, made violent by the storm and dashing high against its bank, made a great breach in it, and a large part of the stream was setting in that direction, and the shore between the two currents gave his men no sure footing, since it was broken and slippery. And here it was that he is said to have cried, O Athenians, can ye possibly believe what perils I am undergoing to win glory in your eyes? This, however, is the story of Onesicritus. Alexander himself says that they left their rafts and crossed the breach with their armour on, wading breast-high in the water, and that after he had crossed, he led his horsemen twenty furlongs in advance of his infantry, calculating that, in case the enemy attacked with their cavalry, he would be far superior to them, and in case they moved up their men-at-arms, his infantry would join him in good season. And one of these suppositions came to pass. For after routing a thousand of the enemy's horsemen, and sixty of their chariots which engaged him, he captured all the chariots, and slew four hundred of the horsemen. And now Porus, thus led to believe that Alexander himself had crossed the river, advanced upon him with all his forces, except the part he left behind to impede the crossing of the remaining Macedonians. But Alexander, fearing the elephants and the great numbers of the enemy, himself assaulted their left wing, and ordered Kinus to attack their right. Both wings having been routed, the vanquished troops retired in every case upon the elephants in the centre. 
and were there crowded together with them. And from this point on the battle was waged at close quarters, and it was not until the eighth hour that the enemy gave up. Such then is the account of the battle which the victor himself has given in his letters. Most historians agree that Porus was four cubits and a span high, footnote, six feet and three inches, end footnote, and that the size and majesty of his body made his elephant seem as fitting a mount for him as a horse for a horseman, and yet his elephant was of the largest size, and it showed remarkable intelligence and solicitude for the king, bravely defending him and beating back his assailants while he was still in full vigour, and when it perceived that its master was worn out of the multitude of missiles and wounds, fearing lest he should fall off, it knelt softly on the ground, and with its proboscis gently took each spear and drew it out of his body. Poros was taken prisoner, and when Alexander asked him how he would be treated, said, Like a king. And to another question from Alexander, whether he had anything else to say, replied, All things are included in my like a king. Accordingly, Alexander not only permitted him to govern his former kingdom, giving him the title of satrap, but also added to it the territory of the independent peoples whom he subdued, in which there are said to have been fifteen nations, five thousand cities of considerable size, and a great multitude of villages. He subdued other territory, also thrice as large as this, and appointed Philip, one of his companions, satrap over it. After the battle with Porus, too, Bucephalus died, not at once, but sometime afterwards, as most writers say, from wounds for which he was under treatment, but according to Onesicritus, from old age, having become quite worn out, for he was thirty years old when he died. His death grieved Alexander mightily, who felt that he had lost nothing less than a comrade and friend. He also built a city in his memory on the banks of the Hydaspes, and called it Bucephalia. It is said, too, that when he lost a dog also, named Peritas, which had been reared by him and was loved by him, he founded a city and gave it the dog's name. Sotion says he heard this from Potamon the lesbian. As for the Macedonians, however, their struggle with Porus blunted their courage and stayed their further advance into India. Footnote. Alexander carried his conquests from the Indus to the Hyphasis, subduing the Punjab. It was now September 326 BC. End footnote. For having had all they could do to repulse an enemy who mustered only 20,000 infantry and 2,000 horse, they violently opposed Alexander when he insisted on crossing the river Ganges also, the width of which, as they learned, was 32 furlongs, its depth a 100 fathoms, while its banks on the further side were covered with multitudes of men-at-arms and horsemen and elephants, for they were told that the kings of the Ganderites and Praesi were awaiting them with 80,000 horsemen, 200,000 footmen, 8,000 chariots and 6,000 fighting elephants, and there was no boasting in these reports. For Androcotus, who reigned there not long afterwards, made a present to Seleucus of 500 elephants, and with an army of 600,000 men overran and subdued all India. At first, then, Alexander shut himself up in his tent from displeasure and wrath and lay there, feeling no gratitude for what he had already achieved unless he should cross the Ganges, nay, counting a retreat, a confession of defeat. But his friends gave him fitting consolation, and his soldiers crowded about his door and besought him with loud cries and wailing, until at last he relented and began to break camp resorting to many deceitful and fallacious devices for the enhancement of his fame. For instance, he had armour prepared that was larger than usual, and mangers for horses that were higher, and bits that were heavier than those in common use, and left them scattered up and down. Moreover, he erected altars for the gods, which down to the present time are revered by the kings of the Praesi when they cross the river, and on them they offer sacrifices in the Hellenic manner. 
Androcottus, when he was a stripling, saw Alexander himself, and we are told that he often said in later times that Alexander narrowly missed making himself master of the country, since its king was hated and despised on account of his baseness and low birth. From thence, being eager to behold the ocean, and having built many passage boats equipped with oars, and many rafts, he was conveyed down the rivers. Footnote. Hidaspes, Akasenes, and Indus. End footnote in a leisurely course, and yet his voyage was not made without effort, nor even without war, but he would land and assault the cities on his route, and subdue everything. However, in attacking the people called Mali, who are said to have been the most warlike of the Indians, he came within a little of being cut down, for after dispersing the inhabitants from the walls with missiles, he was the first to mount upon the wall by a scaling ladder, and since the ladder was broken to pieces, and he was exposed to the missiles of the barbarians who stood along the wall below, Almost alone as he was, he crouched and threw himself into the midst of the enemy, and by good fortune alighted on his feet. Then, as he brandished his arms, the barbarians thought that a shape of gleaming fire played in front of his person. Therefore, at first, they scattered and fled, but when they saw that he was accompanied by only two of his guards, they ran upon him, and some tried to wound him by thrusting their swords and spears through his armour as he defended himself, while one, standing a little farther off, shot an arrow at him with such accuracy and force that it cut its way through his breastplate and fastened itself in his ribs at the breast. Such was the force of the blow that Alexander recoiled and sank to his knees, whereupon his assailant ran at him with drawn scimitar, while Pusitus and Limnaeus defended him. Both of them were wounded, and Limnaeus was killed, but Pusitus held out, and at last Alexander killed the barbarian. But he himself received many wounds, and at last was smitten on the neck with a cudgel and leaned against the wall, his eyes still fixed upon his foes. At this instant his Macedonians flocked about him, caught him up, already unconscious of what was going on about him, and carried him to his tent, and straightway a report that he was dead prevailed in the camp. But when with much difficulty and pains they had sawn off the shaft of the arrow, which was of wood, and had thus succeeded at last in removing the king's breastplate, they came to the excision of the arrowhead, which was buried in one of the ribs. We are told, moreover, that it was three fingers broad and four long. Its removal, therefore, threw the king into swoons and brought him to death's door. But nevertheless he recovered. And after he was out of danger, though he was still weak and kept himself for a long time under regimen and treatment, perceiving from their tumult at his door that his Macedonians were yearning to see him, he took his cloak and went out to them. And after sacrificing to the gods, he went on board ship again and dropped down the river, subduing much territory and great cities as he went. He captured ten of the gymnosophists, who had done most to get Sabas to revolt, and had made the most trouble for the Macedonians. These philosophers were reputed to be clever and concise in answering questions, and Alexander therefore put difficult questions to them, declaring that he would put to death him who first made an incorrect answer, and then the rest in an order determined in like manner, and he commanded one of them, the oldest, to be judged in the contest, the first one accordingly, being asked which, in his opinion, were more numerous, the living or the dead, said that the living were, since the dead no longer existed. The second, being asked whether the earth or the sea produced larger animals, said the earth did, since the sea was but a part of the earth. The third, being asked what animal was most cunning, said, that which up to this time man has not discovered. The fourth, when asked why he had induced Sabas to revolt, replied, because I wished him either to live nobly or to die nobly. The fifth, being asked which in his opinion was older, day or night, replied, 
day by one day. And he added, upon the king expressing amazement, that hard questions must have hard answers. Passing on, then, to the sixth, Alexander asked how a man could be most loved. If, said the philosopher, he is most powerful, and yet does not inspire fear. Of the three remaining, he who was asked how one might become a god instead of a man replied, by doing something which a man cannot do. The one who was asked which was the stronger, life or death, answered, life, since it supports so many ills. And the last, asked how long it were well for a man to live, answered, until he does not regard death as better than life. So then, turning to the judge, Alexander bade him give his opinion. The judge declared that they had answered one worse than another. Well then, said Alexander, thou shalt die first for giving such a verdict. That cannot be, O king, said the judge, unless thou falsely saidst that thou wouldst put to death first him who answered worst. End of section 14.